Welcome back to the Just For Show show, a podcast where we share our common love of theater and performance with fellow artists. I'm Galen Malik. I'm Heidi Swarthout. And I'm Justin Scheller. On this episode, we discuss that one wild and wonderful week that will test your wits and your will to live. It's Tech Week. And later on, we are joined by the multi-talented Michelle Ho. And now, on with the show. Get ready. The review should be posted any minute now. I set my phone to alert me as soon as it goes live. Who cares about some stupid review anyway? Well, you usually seem to care about what the... I mean, who is this critic? You've met her several times, actually. We gave her comps to come and review the last four shows. No, no, no. I know who she is. But, like, who is she, you know? Or, or, like, who does she think she is? What gives her the right? Uh... I'm so sick of critics. Everybody's a critic. And this one, well... Well, you know, her last review certainly left something to be desired. You mean like anything positive about the show or anyone in it? I mean substance, you know, credibility, basic editing. She didn't even spell my name right. To be fair, it was misspelled in the program, too. That's not the point. Whatever happened to doing your research? Whatever happened to journalistic integrity? Whatever happened to... The review is up. Should I read it? Read it. Oh, what's the point? Did you hear the blathering of some soulless, two-bit, pencil-pushing, dream-crushing, park district creative writing class reject vomit all over a website just to make us feel bad about ourselves? And no thank you. We know we produced good work. Oh, imagine needing validation for your art. Art! She wouldn't know art if it crawled into her pantsuit and laid eggs. Who cares what little crabby McCritic face has to say about our amazing show? It's a rave! She loved it! What? Give me that. She she loved it? She loves it! Well, well, don't just stand there. This calls for a social media blast. No, no, a social media typhoon! This brilliant review must be prominently displayed on the ticket page of our website. Do you hear me? prominently. Oh, oh, we need to print 100 new posters. I want this genius review splashed across the poster in neon and in bigger font than the title. And how much does a billboard cost? (laughs) Are you sure we aren't getting ahead of ourselves? I mean, it's just one review. (laughs) Just Just one review. Oh, my friend, you have so much to learn. everybody who does theater is probably familiar with what tech week is although they might have different names for it around here we call it tech week (laughs) around these parts around these parts (laughs) or if we affectionately might call it hell week but yeah mostly we call it tech week um and by that i mean the it's the, the week before you open and it's everything goes into hyperdrive right um, you, you've got your show that you've been rehearsing, you, your show date's coming up in a week, and um, it's the last week, and we got to bring in all the people who didn't need to be in at the rehearsal, necessarily, and work out a lot of the tech stuff. That's the lights, that's the sound cues, that's the whatever. So sometimes it's, it's when you first meet some of the people who are doing your lights, maybe some of the crew, the stage crew. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty crazy week. 
people are usually pretty good about bringing the tech folks in like maybe for the first read through to at least introduce them to say, these are the folks who'll be working with us on lights, set, sound, so that you at least get a chance to meet them. And then they, yeah, they disappear for six weeks and come back. <laughs> and then they're the ones who are putting together your sound and lights um, and any other sort of technical aspects, you know, the stage manager, if the stage manager has to bake cakes every night or um, put together spaghetti or, or what have you, then they'll also come in that last week so that you can get a feel for what it's going to be like to, or do like quick changes, like we've talked about, what it'll yeah. be like to have to go through the process of conducting a quick change so that you can time it out so that you know how much time you're going to need to either add music or yeah. how much time you're going to need or to cut out. Like, how can we make this more simple? How can we, can we put like Velcro on this so that this is something we can just rip off and put on something else? Yeah. It is really where the rubber meets the road where all those things that during rehearsals, you're like, we'll figure that out in tech. Then, then it comes and you got to figure everything out. You've got a very limited amount of time to figure that, that last bit out. Right. It always blows my mind because Tech Week always feels like that that moment where you might possibly want to panic. Like, oh my God, how is this all going to come together in time for our opening on Friday night? And you're mm -hmm. all kind of looking around at each other wide-eyed like, oh my God, do we have enough time for that quick change? Because I'm, I'm just getting this costume, you know, maybe in some cases. Um, or, you know, you're, you're getting some shoe that you haven't worked with yet. Or... Um, you know, yeah, sound cues and lights and all those things are, are just coming together in the final moments. The, the pieces are clicking into place, but I don't know about you guys. I've had several experiences where I've thought, I don't know how we're going to pull this off. And then we always do. It's always fine, but it's just sort of that panic inducing week of everything coming together. Yeah. It's very exciting because it's where those decisions get made that you've been putting off the whole time um, in order to make it work. And it is, it's very, it's a compressed schedule. It's, it's, you're, it's kind of stressful. Um, and the frequency of rehearsals, at least in every production I've been in suddenly is just, you went from, if you had a small part, maybe you, you were meeting a couple of times a week. If you had a large part, maybe more, but tech week is everybody's there. Everybody's there every night. And forget any plans you had because you're going to be at right. Tech Week every night this week until it works. Right. And forget about sleep and rest and all the things that you would ideally want going into a <laughs> week where you have a lot to do. Um, that's not going to happen. You're, you're going to be there late and you're going to do it over and over and over again. And you're never going to catch up on that sleep. I don't know. It, but then it's like the, the opening weekend happens and you've got this adrenaline buildup and you've been on this, um, you've got this momentum going. And so then you, you power through it, you get to Sunday, you crash, <laughs> you, you know, you restart your week. Maybe you have a pickup rehearsal. Maybe you don't, assuming you have more than one weekend. Um, and then, you know, and then you come back together to do it again. Um, but yeah, there's something really nutty about the, that tech week energy. I don't know where it comes from. You know, it's like, you're not sleeping right. You're not eating right. How do we do it? I don't know. We just do. That's a really good point to make, Heidi, is that Tech Week culminates in the opening weekend of the show. So you've been going the whole week, working your day job, and then going to rehearsal at night. 
and then you know getting home at whatever it is 10 30 11 o'clock going to sleep getting up and doing it all over again the next day monday through some in some cases it's thursday and then thursday night you have your opening night and you know and so then you go thursday friday saturday sunday matinee and then finally sunday afternoon after you've been going all of those days you get a chance to maybe like go to bed really early that night to to recharge your batteries um but that's that's really what's challenging about tech week is basically um you become a family that week with the, your yep. castmates and the, the tech crew and the directorial crew it's because you truly are spending every waking moment with them for that last week. Yeah, it's it's an internet meme, at least for some theater people, and, and possibly a t-shirt of just, I can't, it's tech week. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> We've all been there. I, I've been in shows before where, uh, depending on the location of the show, if it was really, you know, the, the theater, if it was really far from my home at the time and where I was working at the time, that it, it didn't make sense for me to even go home. So I would leave work and maybe, you know, sit at a Panera for a little while, get dinner, look at my lines. And in some cases, depending on the theater and whether it was open and this was a possibility, I've absolutely gone in early during a tech week and taken a nap yeah. prior to rehearsal. I sure have. I have no shame about that. Um, or another time I, I, it was the theater I couldn't get into ahead of time, but I called a local friend who lived in the area and said, I'm not going home. I'm just going to grab dinner. And then can I like come and take a nap at your house? And people were very accommodating. So naps, that's my tech week secret. If you can sneak one in, mm. usually you can't. The most glorious thing is when you're in a show that has beds on the set. So then when you, <laughs> so then when you, you get to go in early and just kind of hang out, cause you do work close to the theater, you can just take a nap on the, made up beds <laughs> that are made oh. of wood but they're beds nonetheless that right. sounds nice mostly i just have napped on like dirty backstage couches that are <laughs> stained with god knows what but it's fine because you're exhausted and it's you just kind of cuddle up in there and set an alarm on your phone and get <laughs> yeah. to sleep where you can <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm always surprised that certain people are just seeing the show for the first time on tech week because they're doing the sound or they're doing the lights. And I always want to know what their first impression is because <laughs> we're all as actors who've been working on this for a few weeks. We're all like, Oh, we're so far from being ready to go. This looks so bad. And, um, but I don't know when you're coming in as a, as a light person or a sound person, you are like, Oh yeah, whatever. I'm sure they got it down. I, I just need to worry about when, when my cues are. Um, I'm sure that they've That's probably so got true. some. Yeah, I'm sure they got a, a mixed bag of reactions of, oh, yeah, these guys got it down. And really, they're ready now? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, that's true, because that's a week where you are suddenly inviting more people in than have been there through most of the rehearsal process. And you might be hearing some reactions for the first time, too. So a scene that you've rehearsed a bazillion times in a comedy, and you've almost forgotten that it's funny. And then suddenly there are new people in the room, and you hear these voices, and you hear maybe a couple of laughs from, you know, the sound booth or something. And you're yeah. like, oh, Oh yeah, it's funny. That's right. I kind of forgot. <laughs> Always a good feeling. Yeah. Is there any like tech week surprises or switches that sort of curveballs that come to mind? Um, recent history, Heidi. <laughs> um. Well, let's see. 
you can choose whether this goes in or not. But um, so, I mean, I won't, I won't mention any names, but no fault of the director. I once uh, did a show in a, a venue that wasn't quite prepared for us and we showed up for um, tech week. We had a very short tech week too, because it was being done uh, over a holiday. And so because of the holiday, it was broken up and, and the venue had promised that some things would be done in preparation for the show to open. And we got kind of to that, to the finish line and realized that, nope, there was no glow tape. And so my, uh, my good friend Galen and I (laughs) grabbed a roll of glow tape and just did it ourselves um, to make sure that we were safe and ready. Um, So, you know, sometimes it's just those little things like a detail that you, you know, are, are waiting for it to click into place and, it has or it hasn't and it needs to get done so sometimes you jump in and take care of it yourself right yeah i remember <laughs> figured yeah. you would <laughs> yeah oh yeah there were a few uh, a few last minute things that we needed to sort of jump in and fill the gaps in, in tech week uh and yeah it's, it's again it's those things that throughout the rehearsal process you your mindset is well we'll, we'll take care of that in tech week and or we'll take care of that before we open or, and then sometimes nobody does. And so you just right. kind of have to jump in there and, and grab your glow tape and your hammer and nail or whatever it is and just get through. What about you, Justin? Are there some last minute changes or curveballs on a tech week that you ran into? Pretty late in the rehearsal process. I've been in shows where there's been a cast replacement just because someone had to drop out due to health reasons or sure. something like that. Luckily, it was a small character, you know, it was a small character role. So it wasn't as if they had to take on a lot of um, dialogue or anything like that. But right. it still is a lot to ask someone to jump on board so late in the game. I think it was like the week before tech week. Wow. That is a big curve. Yeah. That's a big, that's a big curve for that person. That's a big challenge for them, but it's also a challenge to the rest of the cast who's been working up to this point. And um, I mean, the nice thing about that, it seems like when those situations happen, there is a real camaraderie that is formed because everybody just wants to help. So it's, you know, you're, you're new here. Let me, let me help you with that blocking. Let me show you where this prop is. Like, what can I do to help? Everyone kind of comes together, but yeah, that's a big curve. And some people might not know, but um, in, in the circles where we perform, um, understudies aren't really a thing. Um, I was talking to a, yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine who, who doesn't do theater and he was really, really surprised about the fact that oh we don't have understudies if somebody gets sick or whatever like no we it's we don't really have that luxury um maybe sometimes you do or you or you have you know someone that you know can step in ahead of time or not but a lot of times you just it's a mad scramble if if something really catastrophic happens right at the last minute so but that turned out okay justin your your show oh yeah yeah, the um, the person who came in, we all knew the person who was coming in. So it was, like Heidi had said, we all just rallied around that person and helped him out. And it was it was great. Um, so it wasn't as if someone had come in and no one was familiar with that person. And yeah. they brought a different vibe to the cast. And it, it was perfect. Oh, mm-hmm. That's good. good. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. I managed to avoid a last minute change, at least for myself. Um, I was in a, a musical 
Yeah. Because, again, this is community theater. This is not big budget stuff. Most of the music was just pre-recorded. It was going to be played through a PA. And we had a wonderful sound technician who had all of the different musical, you know, um, numbers all queued up as separate files and whatnot. And, and they would shuffle them all around however they needed to be. And they would bring them up and bring them down and all that. And, um, all through rehearsals, we had been using a certain set of pre-recorded clips of music that started at a certain beat and ended at a certain point. And, and we, they weren't ideal. Like the sound, God bless our sound producer. Um, did such a great job was like very meticulous about things and didn't quite like where some of these started and ended because it seemed like it was sort of difficult for the performers to, to come in when they're supposed to come in. And so during, I think it was during tech week, it was certainly late in the process. Um, this, the sound technician came out with revised clips that sort of started and ended at different points to make it easier. But I had been so used to the other ones, even though it wasn't, you know, ideal. Like I totally agreed that it wasn't ideal, but it's like, but I learned this one. <laughs> can you please, at least for mine, can you please just use the old one? And, and um, yeah, the, the, the sound technician let me do that, which I'm forever grateful for. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. That would be a, that would be a big change. Yeah. But those are the kinds of things you know, that happen at tech week, right? You're trying to make these little adjustments to make life easier for people. Yeah. My mind is always blown by how, cool and calm the the tech people usually are the ones who come in last minute because they they just know their stuff you know and they're so flexible and adaptable and so i feel like maybe (laughs) the cast and the you know director and stage manager and and we're kind of caught up in our our business and we're in our heads a little bit and we're panicking we're nervous and we're excited and it's tech week and we're (laughs) frantic and then it's like here comes the you know here comes the sound guy and he's all in black and he's got his cap on and he's just like oh oh yeah you want that there okay yeah i'll give you that there oh yeah you want like a sound like this okay i got one of those and it's always like Mm -hmm. no big deal i can handle it i can roll with it and it's i don't know it's a very soothing feeling to um get those people in there to kind of (laughs) balance the energy in the room a little bit definitely yeah it can definitely save people's sanity to to have good tech people come in and just nail it. Yeah, it's nice. Have either of you ever had a last minute costume change during tech week? Like maybe you'd been rehearsing with something up to a certain point and they determined that the fit or the color or something didn't work and they changed it up on you? Yeah, I'm, I don't know that I've had a, a major costume redo, but um I have had like some some plays that I've been in have quite a bit of movement in them. And like for instance, I was in Incorruptible, which at one point had me leaping over a table or something like that and hiding behind it really quickly because someone came in and with an we, eye patch. With with an eye patch, <laughs> yes. And we had rehearsed that a few times. And then um a lot of times you don't get your costumes until close to tech week, if not tech week. And um, it wasn't a change to the costume, but it was like, Oh, I finally have the costume. And I realized, Oh, I am in monk's robes. 
and hopping over a table is not as easy as I thought it was going to be. It worked fine, but it was like, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Um, and, and yeah, things like that or, or lights. Um, again, I, I had an eye patch I was supposed to juggle in this show. And as if juggling with one eye wasn't hard enough, um, when the lights were worked into the show, you're throwing objects into the air that you kind of have to track. And, and sometimes the lights are like right in your face and it's not the easiest thing in the world <laughs> to try to track a little ball that flying through the air as it's going across like three or four bright lights, you know, shining in your face. So yeah, there's, there's some last minute adjustments that you thought were all figured out during rehearsals, but Dan tech week comes along and you're just like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess we got to figure this out now too. Um, yeah, that's part of the magic of Tech Week. It's it's always it's those things that you knew you were putting off that you're getting an answer to, but it's also those things that you thought you had figured out, but you're like, oh no, that that doesn't work that way. You're gonna have to make a slight adjustment because when everything's put together, that it doesn't work the way you thought it was gonna work. Right. Yeah, sure thing. I I know I've had a, a situation before where the skirt that I was supposed to wear, you know, someone had had sewn it, had built it. And perhaps I had on different shoes than what they ended up selecting for me to wear for the actual show uh, when I had the, the measurements done. But, you know, it's like <laughs> tech week and, and I'm swimming in a pool of fabric. You know, it's, it's made for someone like three inches taller than me. <laughs> um, so, you know, like take off your skirt and then, you know, someone's like sitting out in the house, you know, with a, a sewing kit, like putting a, a hem in the skirt get ready to throw it back on me that same night. Um, and again, it's that moment of, you know, oh my God, is this all going to come together? Am I going to have a skirt? Am I gonna, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's all going to come together. It just does. It's magic. Now, have either of you actually done tech work like crew or lights or sound or any of that? Yeah. So I worked six summers at the Metropolis with the kids summer camp and I would run the lights and sound for the final productions. Someone else was programming it into the computer, but then I was basically the go guy. So I was just pushing the go button for the lights oh. and sound to come up. Wow. And then again, for Skylight, um, I chose the music and ran the music and the couple of sounds that we had. I actually tried to delegate that off onto the cast as much as I possibly could so that um, I could watch the show at some points. <laughs> as, yeah. As, but um, yeah, so I've, I have been on that side of it and have some vague ideas about how to program lights and yeah. uh, and putting together sound, most definitely. And I, Heidi, you do too, right? I don't know much about how to put it together. No, I'm, I'm not going to take credit for that. I've always been surrounded by people who are much more knowledgeable than me in those areas. Um, it was part of my theater curriculum, but not a big part of it in college. I have done some crew work though. I've been backstage and, you know, pushed a flat on or, you know, helped somebody with a quick change or, you know, props master, you know, things like that. Um, if you put me in front of a, a light board or something, I would be very lost, unfortunately. <laughs> how about you, Galen? I'm fascinated by how these people can come in and just in a very short time put it all together. I've helped, you know, I've been a little uh, helper elf uh, to some lights and sound people. Um, so I kind of like, 
I understand the difference between lights and how to hook them up and how to, you know, link them together. And when things go wrong, like one of the channels goes down, like I understand what they have to deal with because um, we've had, you know, some of these theaters that we work in are older theaters and, you know, not working with the latest, greatest equipment sometimes. And so, yeah, sometimes there'll be, you know, some sort of lighting hardware issue. Um, and they have to be like, okay, I just need a few minutes to regroup all these lights onto a different thing because this one broke. And, you know, I don't, I don't do those things, but I'm always fascinated by it. Um, and I, I always want to know anytime that they're flipping switches back there, like, what does that do? How, how did you, how do you know how to do that? So, yeah, I may get into it a little bit more at some point, but. I would say you absolutely could. I mean, you now edit a podcast, so it's got to be similar, right? I don't know. <laughs> it's got to be sound similar. aspect. Yeah. <laughs> How different could it be? <laughs> Any sound person now is listening to this, slapping their heads. Yeah, exactly. They're shaking their fist at you right now. Now we got to get you into lights. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. I know some people. I just need to got a guy. Yeah, I got a guy. I just need to follow them around and make them show me stuff. What was it that our, our first episode with Lori Holm? It was just like, there are people who know how to do stuff. Just ask and they will show you. Yes. That's oh, true. good reminder. Great advice. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the experience of being a director during Tech Week, Justin? <laughs> like I said, it was, it was a cakewalk because <laughs> you guys were so ready and, you know, we'd been putting in the work to get all the technical aspects together so I I truly wasn't worried. I think the one thing that was concerning was that the artistic director had wanted to see our show before we went up. And I think she did end up seeing it the week of Tech Week. And she really did want to see it before. But I wanted to be respectful of you all and make sure that you all felt comfortable with her seeing it in a state that you all were comfortable with. And so we, we did, we did push her off <laughs> until tech week. So that was the one, that was maybe the one, um, stressor. Yeah. The one stressor was like, Oh, she really wants to see this. And we're telling her no, cause we want it to be like perfect when she comes in. But of course it's not going to be, cause it's only Tuesday of tech week. And we still have a couple of days before we go up in front of an audience to work out the kinks. But yeah. so that was the one thing I think that, provided somewhat of a, a hurdle or yeah. a bit of a sweat for me. But other than that, I remember was... that. I remember that because it was um, because you were, you were so kind and you kept asking us, you know, like, she really wants to come and are you guys ready? And we were kind of looking at each other, like, because there's that thing of, you know, by tech week, you're, you're, you're pretty ready or you ought to be the week before tech week is kind of a mess. Sometimes in my experience, you, you don't have two perfect weeks in a row leading up to the performance. It just, it doesn't come together like that. Um, and so we did, we really wanted to show her a more polished finished product. I, I don't know about you, but I've had some tech weeks where sometimes the director is just like, you know, I, this is a comedy. It doesn't feel right without a few laughs. I want to bring in a test audience in the middle of tech week. Mm. Oh yeah. And that's a, a, just another thing that just gets thrown into the soup of, Tech week. Yeah. And, and it can be beneficial in some cases to do that, especially if you have some folks who maybe aren't as experienced and they, they haven't been through that yet of having to 
figure out the timing of holding for a laugh. You know, how much, how do you ride that wave so that you're not, you know, you're not holding it like, go on, laugh for me. Mm -hmm. I'll wait. Um, But that if there is that laugh that you understand the timing of it of, okay, the laugh is speaking and now, now I can come in with the next line. Mm. Um, So, I, I understand, you know, wanting to do that in some cases, but yeah, most of the time it's like, oh, just let us perfect it before you come and see it. <laughs> We're almost there. It's tough. Yeah, maybe just give us another week after opening before you show up. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, who's been there before where you where you've got a friend coming to see a show and you're like, you know what? Maybe, maybe don't come opening night. <laughs> um, it's been it's been a rough week. And um oh, uh, yeah. It's not it's not great to, to feel that way, but I, I've been there before. I've been in a show before where I'm like, just you know what? Maybe maybe come to the matinee. I don't, should be- I don't know what you're talking about, Heidi. <laughs> I, I will not ever admit to having having okay, been afraid me, to me invite neither. people. Redact, redact. <laughs> I think that's true of any show, even a show that's in a good place, because like we had said earlier you've spent this entire week rehearsing the show over and over and over and over again. So come Friday opening night, you are a little more tired than you would be. You are running on adrenaline, like you said, Heidi, but I think it's always better for an audience to come see it. Maybe that Saturday night or that Sunday afternoon um, when the actors have had some time to maybe rest a little bit, you know, they're away from their work week. They have a whole day to rest before their Saturday night performance. Um, So I I think that's true, even if you're in a good place. No, Um, but I, I, I hear what you're saying, but I've heard another argument from somebody else who, who tells everybody to come opening night because they believe in this phenomenon of the sophomore flop, that the second performance is never as good as the first. And I don't know. I don't know if, I don't know what's right. (laughs) But sometimes. You can't count on either one of them if you ask me. (laughs) Right. But sometimes there is just that little bit of tech week panic of, oh yeah, maybe, maybe don't come opening night. We could really use another day. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This is a humble brag, but I was in one show where we were in a place that it was like, we just needed an audience. And so the director actually gave us the Wednesday before the opening night on Thursday off because it was like we had rehearsed. Have you all been in that situation where you've had maybe the day before opening night just to relax because you all were in a good place and there wasn't a need to, to beat a dead horse, quote unquote, essentially? Yeah, it's rare, um, but it's it's been nice the couple of times that that's happened where it's like, oh, a little, a day of rest. But then you also, well, at least me, because I'm a very serious overthinker, then you have the, the I have the little worry in the back of my mind of, oh, what if I lose my momentum? What if I lose <laughs> my momentum because I, because I have a night off? Um, but my, my college theater program was actually set up that way where we, we never had a full no break tech week we usually had um the wednesday or thursday before the show off yeah wow i'm gonna have to look forward to that i have not had a day off during tech week (laughs) nobody has offered galen a day off during tech week (laughs) i got that to look forward to maybe someday i think it's good just to check in with your actors too to just say do you want to take tomorrow off do you all feel ready because that i think and i think i did that with you and mike and matt heidi I just said, do you do you want to take tomorrow off? Because I feel good about where we're at. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and, and it's got to be hard for anybody who's directing 
by the time it gets to tech week and all of these pieces are flying into place and everything is happening. It's a whole pressure cooker. Um, it's got to be hard to remember to reach out to your actors and say, Hey, you know, what do you think? How are you, how are you guys doing? It's got to be hard to check in with everybody because it's, it's such a flurry of activity. Yes. Yeah. For a director, you have so much on your mind in those final moments. You're, you're checking with box office daily going, how many tickets are sold? Which night, da, 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 which night are we heavy? Which night are we lean? Um, and, you know, not to mention every little detail, but Justin did an excellent job of that. He always did little check-ins with us to make sure we were okay and felt comfortable and supported and had everything we needed. And that was appreciated, especially in, you know, a really intense show like that where we were. Um, it probably helps when you have a director who does a lot of acting. Yes. I'm always looking forward to being on a show where I know the director has done a lot of acting in community theater. Yeah, because they get it. And that was the case with the director who gave me the night off the day before our opening night was that she was someone who had acted and understood. There's a point where you do come to that crest of we've, we've performed this well more than once before we've even put it in front of an audience. So we need to just take a break and recharge our batteries and be fully ready for tomorrow's opening night. And it was much appreciated. And I think it definitely lent itself to a better product for the opening night audience. Awesome. Yeah. Just to let it breathe a little bit sometimes is nice. If you're in a position where you can do that, sometimes you are and sometimes you are not. Today's guest has quite a way with words. We are delighted to chat with the accomplished writer, actor, and stage manager, the multi-talented Michelle Ho. Welcome, Michelle Ho. Thank you so much for being part of the Just for Show show. We're really happy to have you here to talk to us about all kinds of things. Yeah, she's um, a yeah, playwright, she's with us. an actress, and she's a stage manager, and she's also a founder of the Bard in the Burbs Theater Group, um, which is primarily focused on Shakespeare. And so we have her today to talk with her about all of those facets of her theatrical life. Outside of also being an engineer herself during the her nine to five is her engineering life. Yeah, don't get me started. Actually, if you're going to go down the resume, you might as well add board member to a theater up north as well for Oil Lamp Theater. So that's the newest thing there. Newest meaning I was dragged kicking and screaming to join the board for uh, Oil Lamp Theater is the way I call it. <laughs> oh, so should we say congratulations or no. should we She's enjoying it, Oil Lamp. Don't let her fool you. I enjoy Oil Lamp in that the executive director is a dear friend of mine, a fast friend of mine whom I met through Barton the Burbs when he decided to audition for Much Ado About Nothing on a lark and knocked it out of the park. So far in the park, he basically stole the auditions and became Benedict. And he's been a favorite of ours ever since. So. Very cool. Mm -hmm. It's always nice to have members that uh, you can lean on and you know that you can turn to them if you need them to drive right. and be a leader yeah, you know, so, in a group of so, group. Yeah. In the times that he has ran Hampstead uh, out of, I think it was New Hampshire, and then now Oil Lamp, he's has a very interesting habit of calling me up for a sounding board or advice or just about anything theater related. I don't know why he trusts my input, but whatever. It is what it is. <laughs> You're knowledgeable and well-respected and you've earned it, I would so say. So I've been told. We'll see. 
Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who work with you over and over again for that reason. We're theater Doing. people, right? We're all about feelings. Yes, I <laughs> You also go through auditions all the time and get rejected just as much. So and we hate them. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. really? You Okay, you guys hate them. You guys are still white. There is a difference. I kind of wanted to talk yeah. to you a little bit about that with the whole AAIP thing and what's going on in the world and auditioning because I know we've had some brief conversations about that Michelle so let me explain why okay so if you've seen my website and you saw my theater resume you've seen I've done a significant amount of work on stage not necessarily here in the western suburbs definitely the south suburbs and when I moved to be closer to home um to do theater closer to home versus the south suburbs uh and I tried to audition for shows I don't always get called back and I get and I get that it's subjective it's a whole subjective area after a few years of hitting the boards non-stop and not getting much of a bite I was talking to someone who was on a variety of production teams who shall remain nameless and they said how they respect me and look up to me because I'm so willing to hit the boards as often as I have and it's not that I don't get it. It's not because of lack of talent. It's because the production team did not trust the audience to be able to see an Asian face amongst a sea of white. Wow. How disappointing. <laughs> that happens. So that actually does happen in theater. And you guys don't see it because. Right. We are yeah, of right. the majority out here. Exactly. So like in, in various areas of theater or, or various theater companies that I am a part of um, and even others spread outside of that, I do half joke, half seriously say I'm the token minority because I really am the only minority that's stuck around. Even amongst my friend groups here in the Western suburbs in the theater realm, I am essentially still the token minority. And it has come up in conversations and it does push conversations into more uncomfortable territory because they've never had to confront that. But for me, it's like, if you want to continue to be friends with me, you need to be aware of this. And it does bug me to an extent, but I kind of just forgive them if they are willing to be open-minded and to learn and to talk. So I've gotten some very decent gigs in the city when I was actually hitting the boards. And I've met some great people that way, but we're not really willing to come out to the burst because we all know the chances of being cast in a lot of the shows is next to nil. No matter how many times you say, hey, it's going to be blind color casting or it's going to be um, we're open to any ethnicity. The truth is, are you really? And I think a lot of it is you need to understand your own implicit bias and be willing to confront it every step of the way. And not everybody is willing to do that homework or willing to put in that time. Now, you have had some success with, I know, you know, you are a producer at Bard and the Burbs. You're a founder right. of Bard and the Burbs. And you've worked as an actor with Bard and the Burbs. Mm -hmm. what, is that... what, is, what is Bard and the Burbs? Can you Bard, give us a Bard and the Burbs is, it's like the, it's the brainchild of Sean Ogren and, and his wife, Sandy Ogren and others, where they wanted to see more Shakespeare out, happen out in the suburbs. Um, there have been cases where some theaters have tried to do Shakespeare to some mixed success, but Sean really wanted to have really strong 
theater, uh, theater production, Shakespeare theater productions happen in the suburbs. So it started as, and he's going to kill me for saying this, <laughs> it started as a way to get Hamlet off the ground because he wanted to be in Hamlet and he wanted it to ha- happen with him being Hamlet before he aged out of being Hamlet. So he basically mm-hmm. had this timeline and schedule getting him to a point where he can perform Hamlet. And what in- inadvertently happened is that words started getting around and we st- started getting fuller and fuller houses. And now it became this, oh, well, we should probably do more. And so we've continued to do other shows. So in regards to that, Sean definitely wants to have more blind color casting. And the one thing I've always said is, is that in general, color people will gravitate towards shows or towards productions or towards directors who they know is going to be that open and that willing to see them as an equal. Craig Gustafson is brilliant at that. He has troves of people from all walks of life who'll come out and audition for his productions bar none. Um, and he has a brilliant color spectrum to, to work off of. And because he's known to do that, I think back in the day when I had auditioned for A Little Night Music, he sent me a very nice rejection letter saying that I would love to be able to call you back, but I can't because your schedule is shit. Well, at the time I was doing Peace of My Heart and I was also going to be gone in, uh, in an out of country trip to Vietnam for like three weeks. So that's pretty much most of the rehearsal schedule right sure. there. So, but the fact that he was willing to call me, he wanted to, but, and he was willing to consider me mm-hmm. says, says mountains about him. So that really comes from thinking and a lot of self awareness and willingness to listen and to understand and, be willing to have those uncomfortable conversations and willing to reach out and ask those hard questions that you may not ask otherwise. I know nowadays, especially with everything that's happened in the past year or two in particular, a lot of people have started started reaching out and ask, okay, we're seeing that there's an issue here. What can we do to be better? Mm-hmm. And the back of my mind, I'm saying, now you decide to ask the question? Wait a second. It's, I've been at this for a decade. Where the hell have you been? The other side of it is, okay, then you need to be willing to reach out to those groups. And okay, I can help in some capacity by reaching out to some of those networking groups that I may be familiar with, or I may still have some connections with, mm-hmm. but there's no promises at this point. Right. Because it all, it call, all comes down to networking at the end of the day at the end of the day and most people in the suburbs especially out here in the western suburbs or northwestern suburbs or heck even in the north suburbs in general they go with the people who come to them i think in terms of the north suburbs um is it north light theater and skokie if i remember correctly who who actually do some brilliant blind casting and some shows that you just don't expect and minority people do gravitate towards them in jobs i've seen two three shows where more than half the cast is minority people. I know you've done a lot of work with Craig Gustafson. Mm-hmm. That's how I first met you and did any work with you at all was for a Wheaton drama uh, monthly meeting, a, a little Craig show. And Craig was like, oh, don't worry, you're in great hands. We've got Michelle Ho as stage manager. And the way he said it was like, 
don't worry, you've got the best of the best here. <laughs> You're in the best hands you could be. And mm-hmm. there is something in that as an actor, the, the mm-hmm. comfort of having a, a stage manager who you can rely on and you can look to to know what's going on because they know everything, they see mm-hmm. everything, they are part of every aspect of that production. And um, it was evident right away that, you know, Craig was thrilled to be working with you and every actor there who knew you was thrilled to be working with you. I think I've noticed with Craig, for, for example, and there have been others, um, especially out of Wheaton drama, there's a tendency to rely on behind the scenes talent that you know is going to be solid in the mainstay and so forth. And stage managers are thin on the ground. Um, there was two periods of my life where I was burning the candle at both ends and at the middle with not just my day job, but also with stage managing and doing other um, behind the scenes endeavors. I think I counted, what is it, 14, 15 shows over a span of like 12 months at one point, or another one was 10, 11 shows over a span of eight months. And I was, that's just because I can't say no to friends and they know it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I fell into stage managing really because I wanted to do something behind the scenes when I don't feel like there's a show that I really wanted to audition to be on stage for. And because of my project manager, project engineering background, stage managing is an easy fill in an easy fit. But I often said that stage managing isn't really something I'm passionate about. It's not something that I enjoy doing because it's too much like my day job. So why do I want to do my day job essentially 24 seven, 365 days a year? (laughs) And yet you just told us that you were doing what? 12, 15 shows at once. How do you even juggle that? I I did that in 2012, 2013. I got to take a look at what my, uh, what my resume says. I don't remember half the things I did anymore. Um, But yeah, I I didn't, it's, how do I explain it? I did it then because I wanted to be involved and I did it twice because I can't say no to friends. And it's only more recently when I'm kind of seeing the light is the best way to put it of what really fulfills me and what I miss doing, what I need to get back to doing. I mean, if there's somebody else that wants to stage manage who is passionate about stage managing, there are people who graduated with a major in theater and a minor in stage managing or a specialty in stage managing. Why does it have to be me? Now, if you need to use me, it needs to be as a last resort. I've tried every other person I can think of. I just don't trust anybody, in which case we'll make a deal. But I'm not just going to take any show at this point. Good for you. Yeah, that happens a lot, I think, where there are things that might be a natural fit, but they aren't necessarily your passion. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you said stage managing is easy, stage managing sounds like one of the hardest jobs in the world (laughs) to me. It like I sweat thinking about it. If somebody asked me to stage manage, I would freak out. Um, So good for you that it's that it's easy for you, but that that might not be your passion and, and that's okay. Um, you can be great at it and still say, yeah, I'm great at it and I'll put it over there and pick it up once in a while if somebody needs me, but I'd rather be working on something else. Right. Um, what are the things that you want to work on? What's, um, what's drawing you um, with the passion these days? Well, the easiest way to, to reference that is, again, if you look at my website, I've always joked that engineering is my safety net, writing is my passion, acting is my escape when the other two become too much. 
or another way to put at it is engineering. I'm married to my engineering and I am its devoted wife. But when, when it's nighttime, then the arts become my jealous paramour. So <laughs> I love that. I, I've known for a while that being creative is where I'm most fulfilled is where I'm passionate about. Now, what part of that creativity is still to be addressed in some capacity. I find myself constantly coming back to writing and, and constantly coming back to building worlds or mythologies or background and stories and the like. So we'll is see what thera- happens. Is it therapy for you? Yes and no. Nowadays it's therapy. Before it was just because my brain just refuses to stop. <laughs> so. And what's changed? Why is it now therapy, but it wasn't therapy before? Because I lived a really crappy life. <laughs> As she laughs. <laughs> um, when I first started writing, I was your traditional emo high school student. And so you just write about emotions that you don't really understand. I mean, who doesn't go into some emo phase and try to figure out how to process emotions that you just don't understand? But as I've aged through the years, so much has happened that at the early stages of my life, I was only able to cope by packaging those emotions and those memories and throwing it to the furthest back, the furthest back of my closet. So I wouldn't see them. I wouldn't hear them and just move forward because that's all I knew. And during the following decade, that's how I thrived is just moving forward, moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. It sounds like you now have the language to discuss the things that have happened to you in the past. Is that an accurate assessment? It's probably more more nail on the head than uh, I would like to admit. And I think a lot of that is because I do journal a lot. And I also realized as I was going through old journal entries, I tend to write in a much more prose-like manner. And if I continue writing all those memories in prose, I'll never finish a day. <laughs> there, there are certain entries where I would write about the day and it would be 20 pages long. <laughs> like, okay, this guy's got to stop. <laughs> um, so it started maybe about five, six years ago when I had the idea of a lark meeting between me and an ex-boyfriend who's now an OBGYN. And I thought it'd be kind of cool to do a two person play and the two of them just meet and then they talk and then that was it. So I had an idea for that and I tried writing it, but it didn't, it didn't fit. It didn't work. Um, so I shelved it and I end up doing adaptations of conversations I've had with friends. I think there's one friend of mine who lives in the East coast and he had fantastic stories about some of his friends and their journeys from high school to now. I think one friend in particular, she's like a four foot three young woman who still looks like she's in high school. She owns a gun refurbish company, refurbishment company, making big money. And she has a kid that is incredibly brilliant, but the kid learns and understands things in a it's not entirely incorrect, but it's still not quite right. And 
it was through those conversations that I started creating a series of vignettes called The World According to Roe. Because I couldn't, you you have this three-year-old girl who I think one story I really enjoyed is there was a fire that was, there was a bush that got caught, caught on fire right outside of her room. And she looks around, she's like, oh, it's smoking. Okay, I see flames. Goes over to her dad and says, I think my room's on fire. And he's like, what? My room's really warm. So he goes in to say, why is your room warm? Goes and looks, oh my God, it's on fire. So he's like in a panic trying to call 911 and get everything in. And there's this three-year-old girl who goes into her room, grabs all her favorite toys, puts it out in the hallway, goes back in her room, grabs all her favorite clothes and puts it in the hallway. And she's so calm about it until everybody came to, to, to take, uh, put out the fire. And how many three-year-olds do you know will do that? Mm. So <laughs> how many people of any age would do that? Yeah. That's so, incredible. There's story. So there, there's a whole series of these kinds of stories and moments de- oh, dealing with Roe that I just put in this series of vignettes. And I kind of sh- practice writing or a- adapting other people's words onto script in that point. Um, and then other conversations as well that I thought would be fun to see on stage, would be fun for other people to see or to, and to share and kind of started adapting that way. Um, then I stopped, got in stage managing, did, did a lot of work, blah, 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 and so on and so forth. And then the more recent ones is, I think three years ago, I don't know why I had in my head, but I really wanted to adapt Les Liaisons Dodgeables, which is what Dangerous Liaisons and Cruel Intentions is based off of. And when I, I said, oh, there's got to be a stage play about this. How is there not a stage play? I found out there was a script, read it, and said, What? Mikey Dan Latour doesn't get her comeuppance. What the heck is this? You were not so, impressed. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. And so I decided to create my own adaptations. I found the original manuscript from, uh, I think, Gutenberg, which uh, is it Gutenberg.org? I forgot the website. But basically anything that's out of, uh, out of copyright, you can get a copy of it. And I got the original French version and then used Google Translate to do a hard English translate of it and then use that as my basis. So no one can wow. really say that I'm adapting somebody else's words per se. And that's when I started creating my own version of Les Liaisons as it's now known to be called. And I did a reading of it full 70, 80 page version, I think about three years ago. Um, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't the best, but it, and, and the original plan was to have it as a monthly meeting for a week and drama. And so that needs to be condensed down to 40 minutes, which was impossible if you know the story. And I tried, which then I shelved because I just, week and drama is a very conservative theater in my opinion, <laughs> but I'm also very, very, probably more progressive than, than I like to admit. And I said, yeah, no one's going to like, is going to, going to want to see this on stage and from that group anyway um know your audience right (laughs) exactly well when you have when when you when you have the images that I have in my mind where I'm willing to push that extra I'm willing to push the envelope because that's needed for the story and I'm willing to just try and just explore not everybody's going to be like that. A lot of people like to stay in their own boxes and in their own silos. And I'm like, life's not fun there. Why, why, why do that? 
you know why go that's with a, what you know go with go over here to the dark side you never know if you're gonna like it or not that's such a great point and I, I tell you as actors it's so much more fun to come upon an audition or an opportunity to do something that isn't being done every six months at mm-hmm. every theater I mean I get it there are classics that are beautiful scripts and I understand why they pick them up over and over again because mm-hmm. they're they please people, they make money for the theater. It's, you know, win-win, but to do something that is, you know, a little different, a little out there, a little dangerous, even Mm -hmm. um, that's part of our job. We're creative storytellers. So I love that you're, you know, that you want to push that. Well, I think part of the reason why I enjoy being in the dark side, I guess is the right way to call it is because I've studied and researched so much of it. And I don't believe in taboo subjects. I I understand with the current culture and society that some people are kind of hands off with certain subject topics. To me, nothing's taboo because why should it be? Everybody experiences it in some way, shape or form. Everybody has to deal with it in some way, shape or form. And it would relieve so much pressure and so much stress if we're just able to be open about it and just be able to talk about it. So why aren't we? And I think that puts off a lot of my friends in that capacity, so. How do we evolve if we don't talk about the topics that make us feel uncomfortable? I think we learn so much about ourselves and our own sticking points if we do have conversations about things that maybe unsettle us Mm -hmm. because we learn about the reasons why it unsettles us and maybe that helps Mm -hmm. us grow as human beings if we do really address those those sticking points and those, like you had said, there is no topic that is taboo, but quote unquote taboo topics. Right. I mean, taboo is what a societal construct because some people believe it shouldn't be said in quote unquote polite company when really how polite is quote unquote polite company. Do you enjoy the adapting as much as you do the original work? I think it depends on what I'm trying to adapt. I won't just adapt anything. It has to be something that strikes me, that catches my attention, that has, that is a story that I'm not likely to see or read or hear, or it has to be something I absolutely adore. And maybe there is other adaptations out there and I'm just not happy about it. So Jane Austen being a big one. So Jane Austen, she has three, she has six main novels and most of them have been adapted 50 ways a Sunday here and back again. Um, Persuasion has not really been adapted to the stage, at least not in any mainstream capacity. Uh, Emma is starting to get a little bit of leeway, but it hasn't really hit mainstream either. Uh, Mansfield Park is another one that hasn't hit mainstream, but I saw a fantastic production of it up at um, North Light up in Skokie. And then... Everybody knows Sense and Sensibility. Everybody knows Pride and Prejudice. uh, And North Anchor Abbey is another one that hasn't really been touched. So Emma was, I adapted because a friend of mine really wanted to play Emma. So I'm like, okay, Emma is not exactly my favorite, but I'll give it a shot. So I gave it a shot, had a reading of it and said, okay, well, I got that under my belt. We'll figure it out later. Persuasion is the one I love. Persuasion is the one that I really connected with. I love Anne Elliot. I love her story. I related to her like crazy. And I haven't really seen any kind of adaptations other than a couple of film adaptations that I enjoyed. And so 
I set out to adapt the story and realize that Anne Elliot, the heroine, as it were, doesn't really talk her mind all that much for the first half of the show, at least, except her few close confidants. Everybody else just talks around her, talks through her, or et cetera. And so how do you create a story where the main character isn't an active participant in her own story until much later. So I got around that issue by having her be on stage playing the piano through a lot of the montage sequences. So you can kind of see how everyone revolves around her and kind of flutters around her in that capacity to the chagrin of the woman who's wanted to play Anne Elliot. Um, but I don't care if you want this, <laughs> if you want to play this part, that's what you got to do. <laughs> So, um, and that's probably the first adaptation that I've been really happy with that I've been, I really want to try to polish it and see what happens with it. So. What about your original work? How, what, um, what has been your favorite piece that you've written that's an original piece? Which medium <laughs> would you be asking that question Well, that's a, that's that's valid because you've been writing and keeping track of your writing for 20 years, right? At least. I mean, I was looking back and I thought that was so smart, by the way, to Mm -hmm. um, hang on to everything so that you could revisit it, see how you've evolved, see if there are pieces you could pick back up a few years later. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, you have quite an extensive list of different types of uh, genres Mm -hmm. and and styles that you've written in. So Mm So I guess, yeah, tell us a little bit about the different styles um, and the different genres, and then you can tell us which is your favorite piece of all. Okay, so I do have a favorite piece in terms of poetry. I started in poetry, um, and that was predominantly in high school. But then after that, in college, I did migrate into fan fiction. I mean, come on, most, most, most writers, some writers nowadays, that's Fifty Shades of Grey, anyone? It's a fan fiction writer. <laughs> Let's be honest here. How often have we watched a television show or watched a film or heck even read a book where we sit there and we go, well, what if this happened? Or what if that happened? Or I want to know about that person's story. Or what, what, why didn't they, why did they do this? Why didn't they do that? And that kind of thing. A lot of writers, a lot of people have those thoughts, but not a lot of them will act upon them and create the story to try to expand on them. And so that's where fan fiction writing comes from. There's a lot of really good fan fiction writing out there. And there's a lot of, you know, you, you do it for fun kind of fan fiction writing out there. And did you do a lot of fan fiction writing then? I dappled is the best way to put it. Um, fact, fan fiction writing, I did dapple quite a bit. And... I have a habit of writing overly complicated storylines and so I lot uh, and because I was in college and I was an en- I was an engineering major I don't always have time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean there's really no there's nothing else to it. Um, so the poem that I actually do relate to quite a bit is as I stand here and I wrote that back in 2000. 
So that must have been my college years. As I stand here, as the wind whips around the bend, my hair flutters all around, but I do not turn nor move away, not with my feet firmly upon the ground. As the cold air envelopes me, covers me in a blanket of snow, I feel not the ice, but the emptiness below. I see couples close together beneath the moonlit sky. I feel a tear slide down my cheek as I begin to cry. I feel no comfort, I feel no warmth as my heart turns to ice. No one there to hold me warm as I stand here beneath the night. I feel a pain growing within my heart, a loneliness I felt for so long. No one there to comfort my tears, no one's arms where I belong. It starts. <laughs> it my starts goodness. Out as a very sad. When I wrote it, again, emo, right? It was alone and all the fun jazz. But the reason why I relate to it now is because I'm come as I've grown and I as I age, I either come to terms or I'm starting to embrace the loneliness and embrace being on my own. And so the poem holds a much different meaning. And that's the wonderful thing about poetry is that it can mean one thing, one minute, it can mean a totally different thing the next if written right. So that's the one I relate to the most that still holds dear to me in some capacity or another. And do you still write new poetry or is that something that you've sort of moved on from? Um, I've moved on for the most part. But one would argue that script writing or in some capacity is a poetry in its own way. Sure. I love the mm-hmm. image of you becoming a part of the scenery you describe in the poem. That's really mm-hmm. a very cool conceit. Yeah. And I think the reason why I tend to write that is we are one with the world around us. We're not any better or any worse. We are all connected. And I, that sounds very lame when you think about it but it's it's not just we're just connected person to person but we're connected to the world around us to the trees and and the breeze and the animals we talk to and interact with and it's we are we, we really are interconnected so when I see news stories about how this company is destroying this rainforest or this oral line breaks in the pipeline and things like that. It's like, we're not taking care of the planet and ergo there'll be times that, Oh, we have massive tornadoes that ram through all of Harvey and shuts down a a substation. And it's like, well, that's mother nature's way of saying you haven't taken good care of me. So it's, you know, (laughs) I'm still here. Yeah. And it seems to me that you feel, you feel that there, you're such an empath that you can feel that sort of destruction and you can feel that, um, you know, even things that happen on a worldwide scale feel very close to home for you. And a lot of that also comes from having a more worldly perspective on life um, and understanding that all of our lives in some capacity or another isn't isn't exactly an accident or it's not always it's certain certain sets of circumstances have to happen for certain things to happen and I'll I'll take myself as an easy example I mean I will say that I am a product of war the reason being is that both my parents fled Vietnam during the fall of Saigon and a very specific set of circumstances had to happen for them to meet here in the states if any of those circumstances didn't happen I would not exist because my parents ran in very different social circles and had no reason to have met when they were back in Vietnam and then they had to meet in the States. 
But when every when the refugees came to the United States, they weren't all just isolated in one area. They were all over the country. So how did one set of families come from who landed in one state and then moved to another state while another set of families went from one state to another state? It's very specific. Have you written that story? I mean, that's a beautiful story and it should be written. Have you have you adapted that for prose or for a script? Absolutely not. No. No, that is my fam. That's my parents' story, not my own. That's my, that's it's, but that being said, um, for on a lark, I decided to write an adaptation of, of the stage musical Miss Saigon for film. And I did embed other stories of the Vietnamese and the struggles they could potentially be having into some of the other Vietnamese roles. So it's not strictly the love story that everybody seems to love and are drawn to, which is a good cornerstone. But you have to remember that these are people who are scared for their lives and know that because they're aiding and abetting the Americans in the South Vietnamese, that should they be caught or captured by the communists, they would be sent to re-education camp. And re-education camp is not as pretty as it sounds. Now, I know it sounds like Michelle's, the narratives that Michelle writes are all dark, and that's not true, listeners. She also has written soap operas. And so she wrote, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. I know you like to keep it dark, Michelle, but come on. You, you uh, wrote an online or wrote for an online soap opera. And can you tell us a little bit about the experience of writing for a soap opera as opposed to writing on your own um, independently, a play or um, a film or a poem for that matter? Online soap operas is, I don't know what you mean by online soap operas are not dark. Are you kidding me? They're full of incest and, and abuses and affairs and sometimes really crazy plot lines and kidnappings and things like that. That's darkness at its own level. Um, <laughs> that being said, um, I don't, I don't remember how I fell into it, but I sent a couple of pieces to the producer of the online soap opera called Currents. Um, and they apparently enjoyed my writing at the time. And the way that we write scenes uh, for every episode is that each writer have their own characters and they either work with, they either have their own characters in their own storylines, or we work with other writers to create storylines. So it can, it can be a very collaborative process. So I, I've picked up characters from other people that they did not want to write for anymore or could not think of stories for them. And I also created my own characters. And I kind of just took what was given to me, researched what had happened in the past, who the family members are, and kind of tried to move them to another level or try to move them to another story. And I realized during, uh, during that process that I, am, I thrive more as a collaborator versus just writing on my own. I can write on my own, but I feel better having the feedback, having the back and forth with other people. So Yes, there have been stories about a bunch of kids just going through college and the usual dating scene and how to date or who not to date. Or there's a bunch of people who are working towards going to the Winter Olympics and the issues leading into that. Um, but there's also more action type stories, like one of the characters 
had fallen into witnessing a crime done by a mafia ring and then suddenly had to go to the witness protection program. That's been a common thing over there. So it's been, it's been on hiatus for God knows how long now, but I enjoyed that time there. Um, I mean, I still do. I still look back on some of the scenes. I still, I was reading old scenes that never made it to the episode of some of the relationships that have been made and some of the joys and the plans that we have. Like there's some couples that were planning to move in together. And I remember a conversation I had with one of the other writers. She's like, you know, I write this character in other areas and he's usually an asshole, but over here he's loving and he's a dope. And what did you do to me? I don't know. <laughs> well, I think like it might happen. be a might be a recurring theme with you, Michelle, because we're talking about Jane Austen. We're talking about soap operas. I've read some of your original scripts. I've been lucky to mm-hmm. get to read some of your original scripts with you. And a recurring theme is often romance and relationships. Mm-hmm. So um, could you speak to that a little bit? Um, how long have you been a big old romantic? I would call myself an incurable romantic. I... I will be quite honest about that. I've kept that very well under lock and key as much as I try to anyway. Um, There was a time I do believe in true love or soulmate, but I think the concept of soulmate has evolved where it doesn't necessarily have to be a lover, but it could be a best friend. It could be someone that you just have a, a kinship with someone that you can rely on thick and thin. Um, The concept of relationship has evolved from a traditional person to person lover romance to being someone that you've been friends with for over decades and have built a comfort and an understanding with. Um, I've also worked with people in, uh, in other industries where there, I've learned the concept of polygamous relationships or polyamorous relationships and how that works and why that happens and why that occurs. And I know that can be a taboo subject for a lot of more conservative people, but it is entirely possible to be in love with multiple people at the same time. That's we're not meant to be monogamous people because our lifespans has grown exponentially over the past how many decades from when our mortality rates were what 30 40 years well Um, this will make for some very interesting scripts Um, (laughs) (laughs) because you know but really I mean you're you're talking about um you know unique relationships Mm -hmm. those can make amazing stories um I'm always looking for story ideas that is a little off the beaten path because I don't know about you, but I don't want to read stories or watch stories that you probably can predict this, predict the ending 15 minutes in. Heck, I've done that. I'll sit there and I say, oh, is this what happens? And then this what happens? And this is what happens? My friend's like, shut up! <laughs> it's... <laughs> oh, that's yeah, what happens. As a writer, is it hard to enjoy entertainment, going to movies, watching TV shows? Because you have your own version, your own fan fiction version, or like you say, you sort of see the structure of story. And so it's it's easy to predict the way that things are going to go or the different devices they're going to use to tell the story. I am incredibly picky with what I see. And part of it is because I actually stopped watching television since high school, um, except for 
maybe the occasional reality competition show every now and then. But honestly, in terms of scripted writing, I stopped watching all of those way back when. Mainly because I was studying like crazy at the time. And now it's just, it nothing interests me. Um, film is a lot hard, is also just as difficult. I need to be, I'm, I find I'm drawn to films that have a mythos, that have an outside world beyond what you see in the screen in front of you. Like, I think the reason why I'm drawn to, let's say the Marvel Cinematic Universe isn't because of the films themselves. It's because of the world around that, like the world of Wakanda, or the world in that timeline or the universe and things like that. The movies just give you a glimmer of that. Now I wanna know more. Um, I mean, Lord of the Rings is another one where Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, it's not so much the films themselves that I'm interested in, it's the world beyond that that I'm really interested in. So I need to be engrossed, I need to be encompassed. And theater is, oh, theater is a hit and miss. It always has been. I think I've been spoiled with theater, number one. Number two, when I saw Sleep No More in New York, when it within the first year after it opened, I saw it twice in the same weekend I was in New York and I saw it at midnight both times because I was seeing traditional theater shows. It's ruined theater for me. That immersive experience has ruined traditional theater for me. I can't see a traditional theater show. It's, can, it's hard. Can you describe that for our listeners who may not sleep be no from, more? <laughs> well, and just what the experience is like. Yeah. Because it isn't, uh, it's not, it's unconventional for what people are used to, you know, sitting in and audience and watching a proscenium stage with actors that yeah describe what sleep no more and immersive theater is all about okay so sleep no more is loosely based on the shakespeare play macbeth but they've also expanded that universe beyond that so what happens is that you come into what is essentially a warehouse that's about five stories high give or take and a huge plot of land and you come in and you're given a time slot to enter the space. And you don't come in and enter the space and sit down anywhere. You come in, you make sure you have sneakers, you have comfortable shoes on because you're going to be walking up and down those stairs and going every which way. You Once you enter, you can see all the props and and the sets and all the pieces and you can finger it and you can follow it. You are in that world. You can live and breathe in it. And every now and then you'll come across an actor and all the actors are silent. They, they don't say anything to the masses at all. They just go through the movements and every now and then they'll jump into a dance sequence that will give you what is happening in that moment. And you are allowed to follow the actors as they go through, go through their track as it is and can go through the various scenes and all the various rooms. Every now and then they will interact with you. So once in a while, an actor may have a monologue that they have to, they have to interact with a singular participant. And so they'll take that participant and like take them off to a hidden porter. And then you get that one-on-one experience with, an, uh, with one of the actors. And I haven't had the luxury of it, but others have. And it's an amazing experience. And you can follow the actors as they run up and down the different floors, or if they disappear into a wall, then you have to find another actor you need to follow and, and things like that. Or you see a fight in, that breaks out in the middle of a hallway between two actors. It's, it, it's, it really changed what theater could be for me. And, and I realized that that was the world I wanted. I wanted to 
experience and I wanted people to experience being in a world and understanding the moments from here to there and just live in it versus just watching it. And traditional theater and film and anything really is we are just an outsider looking in. But what happens when you're actually in it as an audience member and you get to breathe it? That's where theater, that's where entertainment and, and, and it essentially needs to go. And VR is doing that to an extent, but that's still a kind of separation of we are just a viewer versus just being in it. So you have adapted scripts that you thought maybe, or you've adapted stories into scripts that you thought maybe weren't um, adapted properly. You have sort of made these stories happen for yourself. Do you have any aspirations to direct or produce this type of immersive theater? I'm kind of the type of, I'm doing this for myself and let's see where it goes. And I think the reason why I'm like that is because I'm never really sure of my own abilities and talent because I've been dabbling and just playing around with things for so long. So I'm kind of at the point of, well, let's move this along and move this along. And then it gets to an ending point, then if I move it to the next level, I'll move it to the next level. But until I cross that bridge, I'm perfectly content with where I'm at right now. So you're saying you realize you have power, but you haven't realized the extent to which you have power. Because I'm one of those people that say that power in my hands is a very dangerous thing. (laughs) (laughs) There's a reason why I'm not willing to move any higher than certain levels in a company. There are reasons why that, yeah, power in my hands is is a very dangerous thing. And I fully realize that. (laughs) Did, Did sleep no more excite your acting juices at all or not really? had excited my dancing juices because all those actors were dancers um and I would never have danced like them I would never be able to be at that level but I know there have been some dancers like so you're thinking of dance those dancers who have partaken in sleep no more I mean they are some of the most brilliant dancers I've ever seen and and to dancing is an art that isn't utilized enough especially in theater is more jazz um dancing which I don't like I abhor that's just my own personal feelings (laughs) um but like contemporary lyrical ballroom that tells stories it's those to me is is the forms of art that really needs to be elevated it really needs to be the focal point if at all possible And that's what Sleep No More did to me, is that dancing can be the primary storytelling um, medium versus using the voice versus singing. So now whether I would do that or not, it's a different story, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because, yeah, we know that you have ballroom dance experience um, and you've incorporated that even into some of your scripts, the your ballroom uh, Mm -hmm. history. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the acting portion of your theatrical artistic endeavors. I know that you had played Ophelia, um, in Hamlet when had put it up. <laughs> right for one performance, but can you talk about the headspace of that character and getting into the headspace of that character? Hamlet was probably 
the reason why I started allowing myself to open up the memories that I have kept at bay for so long because I needed those memories to understand the darkness that was within Ophelia and to understand the pain and the anger and the anguish. And I was terrified. I'll be quite honest about that. It's not something I wanted to do. Heavens know, heaven knew I tried to get out of it several times. <laughs> There's a lot of arguments about that one. Um, getting into that space for me it wasn't, it wasn't the challenge of the part as much as me being open and willing enough to expose myself to, the, to some of those feelings and emotions that I didn't want to allow myself to feel previously. And yeah, I mean, and that's, that's usually how I work when I have a part, when I do have a piece or I have a part is that how can I relate to this? How can I tie myself to this? How, what, what is that moment in my life that would allow myself to connect with this character and to live her life in that way? And once I find that focal point, breathing the character becomes a piece of cake for me. Yeah, it's a vulnerable experience to find mm-hmm. those connections, especially when they are difficult or painful, but mm-hmm. that's what makes for the most honest performance. So it, I, I totally understand that, you know, being excited to dig into a great role, but being nervous about the places that it takes you emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's, that is a scary thing. It's, you were rightfully scared. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't forgiven. Um, I mean, a part of me hasn't forgiven him for pushing me in that direction, but the other part of me is thankful that he did because it really opened the floodgates in sorting through other emotions and other memories just to find a way to utilize them in more constructive ways versus just hiding them away. Catharsis, baby. It's a beautiful thing. It's painful, yeah, but it's yeah, also beautiful. It yeah. <laughs> yeah. What do you know? I'm kidding. <laughs> Michelle, I want to thank you so much. I know that this was something that you felt challenged by and you were a little apprehensive to be a part of. And, but I do want to thank you for being so candid with us today. I know that the conversations were not always easy, um, but no, I know, but I, but, but I and Galen and Heidi are very appreciative that you, you shared with us today because you were very vulnerable and we appreciate that. Yes, We appreciate your authenticity. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this episode of the Just For Show show. Join us again next week when our guest will be Matt Hellyer. I'm Galen Malik. For Justin Challer and Heidi Swarthart, I'd like to thank you for listening. We do appreciate that. If you have questions, comments, or solemn oaths that you'd like to share with us, you can find us on Facebook or email us at justforshowpodcast at gmail.com.